Turn with me to Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 13. I wanted to read all the way to verse 23 because it, there is, uh, this section is framed in, in Judas's uh, uh, cabal with, with the religious authorities. And then Jesus' statement against him uh, and woe pronounced against him in verse 22 of, of the same section. However, in light of the fact that next week is Communion Sunday and in, in truth, uh, wanting to dwell in verses 14 through 23 with you next week, we'll, we'll treat that passage next week in verses 1 through 13 today. So this is uh, the word of God, inerrant and infallible. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word this morning to our soul. We pray that if there are any unconverted folk who have tuned in or who are following, Lord, we ask or present this morning amongst even our own families. We ask that you would lead them through your sovereign work as uh, in salvation uh, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, leading them to truth to hope, to joy. We pray that you would feed your sheep, that we might be encouraged on the way and enabled to continue to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> One time many years ago, I was in seminary, and, uh, I, well, I think, I think we're, this is my 23rd years of of gospel ministry. So two more years and I'll have 25 years since my ordination, which I'm looking forward to celebrating. And But one day while well, I was just a plebe and uh, just a, a humble seminary student, and it was my joy to go out and to work on preaching. And I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what preaching was. I was very wet behind the ears. Uh, I'd probably preached a handful of times and uh, uh, Marguerite, who handled that schedule in seminary, said, Stephen, uh, you're, the you're an adventurous sort. Um, you like to go out on the circuit and didn't have an assignment for you this week. Would you be willing to go to New Orleans, which is a few hours away from Jackson, Mississippi? And I said, sure. I said, will they reimburse my gas? And, and she said, yes. And, of course, we were dirt poor. So we got into our, sh our truck, our Chevy pickup truck. And uh, we drove with, uh, it had a bench seat, Christine and myself and uh, our three children. And we drove all the way down to, uh, to that place. And little did they, we know that I was told, get a room and they'll reimburse you for that as well. Uh, needless to say, I did not get reimbursed uh, that weekend, which was a real hardship to me. But I eventually did after I pleaded and begged. Um, but, but, but. What they didn't tell me was that the NCAA had a tournament that weekend in New Orleans. And getting a motel was impossible. So needless to say, it was extremely difficult. We went from hotel to hotel, and eventually we stayed that night, I think, in the seediest hotel that we've ever stayed in. 
Uh, it was pretty rough. There was noise in the parking lot all night. There was all sorts of paraphernalia in the parking lot the next morning, but we were thankful for a room. Well, Jerusalem uh, at, at, at the Passover is not unlike that, uh, having an NCAA tournament, but even more. With an NCAA tournament, you might see tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of people descend on the locals' scene. But with, with Passover, Jews would come from around the world. And Josephus recounts, as a Jewish historian who turned and actually began to do uh, work for his Roman captors, he was a zealot before, and then he became a faithful supporter of the Roman Empire after that, when he was captured. And he recounted the history of things regarding the Passover, and he says in his writings that some two million people would descend upon Jerusalem. Think about an ancient city, and maybe here in the city of Springfield, Massachusetts, being a larger metropolitan area, we could perhaps absorb a a couple of million people, but we certainly could not within our hotel spaces. We would have to have private homes open with extra rooms provided for people to stay. And that was the principle in Jerusalem, in, in the ancient city of Jerusalem. But... That's what the Jewish folk would do. They would rent out a room or they would have their relatives in or they would camp outside in their tents. One way or the other, the city had to absorb two million people. The idea of getting a room for celebration of the Passover on the day of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, there is no way that you will find a room or a house in which you can celebrate that feast together. Never mind finding one with enough space to recline. Well, that is the case. And, of course, Jesus is more than an ordinary man. He is a man, uh, but he is a divine person. He is the Son of God. And so I don't know the, the, the circumstances by which he has worked this, but certainly the Holy Spirit could lead a man to be convicted that he ought to provide a room a space for the the one in whom he believed. Or he could simply provide a room with the expectation, not even knowing what he was doing, but with the expectation that God would use it. Regardless of the facts, the truth is that here in this particular situation, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly the circumstances of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He knows the circumstances. He he knows the individual who is going to carry some water. And he knows the master of the house. And he knows that a house has been prepared for him, a room. You You see a sovereign Jesus here. Albert Schweitzer in his book, The The Quest for the Historical Jesus, don't don't buy it, it's not worth the money, but he sees Jesus as a victim, one who is crushed by the confluence of overtaking circumstances. You see, those who are in the quest for the historical Jesus movement are those who would say there is a difference between the historical Jesus and the biblical Jesus. The one recorded in the Bible as Jesus has a lot of uh, uh, myth attached uh, to his name, his stories, his teaching. Uh, Much of it is recorded by his followers who wishing to create this biblical uh, persona uh, magnified, magnified who he was. And so there is a difference between the biblical Jesus and the actual historical objective, objectively observed individual Jesus. We would say there is no difference between the two. That the biblical witness is true and faithful. That God has preserved for us through through men a faithful account of who Jesus is and what his words are. And so uh, despite the fact that Mr. Schweitzer sees that Jesus is kind of caught up in this confluence of overtaking circumstances, he's powerless, he's carried along. That ignores the idea that here is Jesus repeatedly throughout the gospel saying, go and do this, go here and you'll find that. Throw your line on the other side of the boat. Go out, Peter, and, and catch a fish and in his mouth you're going to catch some coins. Nothing but the sovereign God can affect such things. Nothing but the sovereign God could place his hand on a
person who is born blind and immediately they become, they're able to see. <clears throat> well, these are the, this is the last week of the life of Christ recorded in Luke's gospel. This is Sunday or Saturday all the way to uh, Sunday and of the following week. Luke is recording for us the last words, the last discussions of Christ, the, the, last, uh, the last week of Christ responding to this apex of his earthly ministry. He has been prepared for this death, this moment. He is ready, he is endured, and he will now suffer deeply. Your Savior suffering in the last week of his life. This is where Luke will take us through the rest of this book. Thus far, Sunday, Saturday and Sunday, he had entered at least one of those days into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. He had been anointed at Bethany by Mary, who had washed his feet with her hair and placed nard, an expensive bottle of nard on him, uh, on his head and cleansing of his feet with the same. Uh, You remember in that moment, and we'll return to this idea in just a couple of moments, that in that moment Judas rebuked Mary for her costly gift, protesting that surely the money that, that it took to afford such an expensive perfume could have been given to the poor. And we know that this man, as as John records for us, a very interesting note where it is not stated anywhere else in the Gospels, but John records for us that that in fact Judas was caught or, or had been known to be stealing from the communal pot of money that was supporting Jesus and his ministry. Judas didn't have a concern for costly perfume being divided and its funds and its value and uh, given to the poor. Judas wanted a piece of the action. On Monday, Jesus walks into Jerusalem again from Bethany, cleanses the temple, curses the fig tree, weeps over Jerusalem, heals a man who was born blind and lame. He discusses the destruction of the temple. And then Tuesday, there is an Olivet Discourse where he speaks again. Judas speaks with the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus. That's where we are. On Wednesday, Jesus will prepare further for his suffering. He'll have private discussion with his disciples, as recorded in John chapter 13 through 16. On Thursday, the events of this chapter will continue to occur. Those of Jesus entering in before his disciples, washing their feet, the Garden of Gethsemane, betrayal, the high priest's house and a hasty gathering of the Sanhedrin, Peter's betrayal, abandonment by all, and Friday after multiple trials, at least six, you will experience death on the cross. So we are in Tuesday in the first part of verses uh, of verses one through thirteen, and then we are in Wednesday and Thursday when Jesus is in fact sitting down and eating with his disciples in verse twenty. Uh, pardon me, in verse uh, 14 following. Well, we look at Judas here, and we see two individuals in this passage, Jesus and Judas. And we hear Judas has left the Lord in a quiet moment, and the chief priests and the scribes are seeking how they might put him to death. They're afraid of Jesus, and, uh, well, they're afraid of the people, and they wanted to, they were afraid of Jesus, and what he represented in the, the, the ending of their privileged place as religious leaders. The Feast of Unleavened Bread had come. Surely Jesus would be here. They didn't know where he was. They needed to find him and to find him in an area where he was not surrounded by people because they were afraid that the people would crush them if they tried to take him. Fortunately for them, Satan, knowing the desires of their heart, enters into Judas Iscariot, and he discusses with the chief priests how he might deliver to them Jesus to them apart from the crowds. This is the fundamental issue. Get Jesus away from the crowds, and then you can arrest him. Now, we would say, well, how can Judas be 
counted guilty here because, in fact, Satan has entered into his heart, has entered into his life, entered into his mind, and is directing these events. Well, this was Judas's desire. Judas is the one who has determined, predetermined, that he would, in fact, serve his own interests. He has been stealing from the communal purse. He has been taking what does not belong to him. He has had jealous thoughts about money. He has looked jealously at the Lord, and he has determined hatred in his own heart. He was offended by Mary's sacrifice, the cleansing of Jesus, and the perfuming of him whom Jesus said in that moment, she is preparing me. She was preparing him for his suffering, preparing him for his death. Judas is a free moral agent and he could make his own free moral choices. He is freely acting as Jesus has sovereignly determined. But there was a greater influence there, too, and that is Satan. You know, Satan can never enter into a person unless they have left themselves wide open to him. Romans chapter 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are told that we need not fear Satan and, and all those who are in power in our universe who serve him and his interests. If we have God as our protectant, he is a strong tower, a rock of salvation. He is our faithful deliverer, our savior. Jesus, do you remember the words when he accused, uh, when he was accused of casting out a demon by Beelzebul? He had cast out a demon from a deaf and blind man. And it was in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 and following And Jesus said this, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied. You see, that's the carefully operative word, unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Jesus is not talking about believers and those who, in whom the Holy Spirit lives and in whom Christ lives. Rather, he is speaking of those who are wicked, which is what he said at the end of that section, and those whose houses, whose, whose selves are unoccupied. Judas was an un- unoccupied man. He was one who walked with Jesus, who saw Jesus performing many miracles. He saw that man by whom the religious authorities said, you're casting him out by Beelzebul. He saw that man walk in, unable to see, unable to speak. Jesus touch him and he is instantly healed. He saw Jesus heal the man at the pool with some mud and put it on his eyes and heal him. He he saw Jesus heal the blind men who had cried out, Jesus, have mercy on us. He has seen the, uh, the, 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 the water turned to wine. He has seen uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and, and the 4,000. He has beheld the work of the glory of, God, of the Son of God. He is... We, we, we make the assumption that if we, have, if we had only seen extraordinary things, if we had only seen the miracles of Jesus, heard his works, and sat at his feet, we too would be believers. Or we too would be as faithful and as committed as the apostles. Well, there was one who did. He saw it all. He heard it all for nights, uh, for three years. At night they slept together, not in, the, not in the way in which our world is so over-sexualized, but families slept in the same rooms, slept perhaps even in the same bedding. They found a place to live. They ate of the same communal uh, meal or pot. They fished together. They ate together. They walked together. He sat at the Lord Jesus' feet. He saw it all. He took it all in, and he was not a believer. And it's deeply sobering. 
Judas did not fall from grace, nor did he cast aside an authentic faith. He's an example of an inauthentic, deceptive, false professor, a a hypocrite, a a self-deceived pretender, a wicked man who could see the entirety of the Messiah's life and would give that same life for a few coins and pretend for three years that he loved him. Jesus is completely aware of Judas's intent. In John 17, 12, it says, And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction or of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. There's Jesus praying to his father. And he's saying, I have not lost one of the sheep that you have given to me except for that one. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus did not come up short with Judas. Jesus did not somehow fail in his grace. Every individual who has truly experienced the grace of God, not just a taste of it from afar, or seeing it, observing it with our eyes, but upon whom the grace of God has come and the forgiveness of sins cannot be lost. Jesus is acknowledging that Judas was raised for this very purpose that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus is also aware of David's typological example in the Messianic notes of Psalm 41.9, where, where David says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted his heel up against me. Judas will see Judas betray Jesus in the next section. Jesus will say to him, and to the others who have partaken of the same meal with him, that he must go and do what he has purposed in his heart to do. Judas's betrayal, he takes the initiative for the sake of money to find a convenient way to betray him that would not inconvenience him or them. So there are so many people in the city. How can you go about doing this? And at what point can you get Jesus alone without massive crowds around him? They followed him 24 hours a day. Well, there would be a moment because Jesus often goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And surely in the middle of the night is when Judas finally comes, when he knows that Jesus is alone. Nothing but the disciples there. Jesus is in grave danger in this passage. It is not an unknown danger, but it is grave danger. In John 11:57, the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. And in fact, this is what they have determined. And so Judas has become aware of this and he responds. He is willing to do this. Jesus is aware of these circumstances. We know this because of what he says in verses 21 and 22. The hand of the one betraying it with me is with mine on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going, to, going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus is fully aware of Isaiah 52 and 53. He's fully aware of Psalm 41, Ahithophel and David. He knows that these events, we know that these events are not random. Christ is no victim. Judas is a responsible human agent, and he has made a choice here. It's a scary thing to see that concurrent will, the the concurrence of God's will and that of a sinful human being. God is working his will through his creatures, and it is a terrible thing to behold the human condition and will when God withdraws his restraining hand. And when God does not occupy the heart of a person, in fact, he or she is left entirely at the will and power of Satan. They have left themselves by an act of their own will. Free and susceptible to the suggestions of Satan. Stiff and rebellious and indefensible. Really, this is the picture Judas is of every unbeliever. Of us, we ourselves, when we were unwilling, unable, blinded, unhearing, refusing to come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Judas twice ignores offerings of grace and mercy. There's a revelation of his evil intent by Christ. They're there at the dinner and 
Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And each of the disciples are asking him, is it I, Lord? In Matthew 26, 25, Judas comes to Jesus and says, after he's already spoken to these individuals, he's already made this plan. Teacher, is it me? Is it I, Lord? He says too. Jesus is also warned, secondly, He is warned of the impending eternal punishment. Better that that one had not been born, Jesus has said. Really, this is the profile of unbelief and of any unbeliever, an internal secret commitment to to our own way, to, to our own plot for personal advancement, comfort, and purpose, ignoring all the while the offers of grace and forgiveness, eternal love and present joy. It's a picture of the hardness of sin, isn't it, Judas? The deceitfulness of sin, the hardening influence of sin. Think of what Judas is is doing by way of this transaction. He is determined that he would rather have a few pieces of silver, which he will throw down on the ground and then go hang himself for, over. They will be utterly worthless to him. And he is giving up the incalculable benefit of everlasting life, of grace and every sin forgiven, of freedom, of conscience, guilt removed, the washing of regeneration, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the engifting and the filling of the the Holy Spirit uh, in Christ. He's going to give it all up. And I'll tell you, in every sin, there is always this miscalculation of benefit. In every sin committed by every believer or unbeliever alike, don't we make a a calculation that in some way this moment of known sin should be committed because it will grant me an immediate benefit and I'll worry later about the effects? Maybe that's Judas's perspective. But isn't it true that sin never really delivers? That there is an immediate gratification when we indulge in sin? And yet, is it not true that what we have gathered by way of our sinful motives and our sinful actions, that we are ready, like Judas, to throw it on the ground because it is a hated and terrible thing? Isn't it true that when we take up some sin and we commit it against our conscience, knowing it is wrong, and we do it anyway, are we not filled with bitterness afterwards? Sin is so bitter, it, it does not yield a fruit that is sweet nor good. The deceitfulness of sin tells, tells us, I will deliver and you will have pleasure. And then after it is indulged in, Satan whispers into our ears, you're not a believer. And we see the bitterness of the sin that we have just indulged in. Isn't it true that sin is disappointing in its lasting effects? that it does not deliver on permanent joy and it cannot satisfy our souls. Sin is an illusion. Sin is an illusion in, in what it promises. It promises what it cannot deliver. And the soul that engages in sin knowingly and continually, tragically, has forsaken grace and has made a horrible transaction at the expense of their soul. Judas has done that. John 8.34, everyone who commits sin is, is, is enslaved to sin, is a slave of sin. <clears throat> Each of us is capable of this kind of sin, but grace is offered to every sinner, even now, how wicked the heart is, in its natural state, isn't it? And yet, even there, God can break through the hardest of hearts and His grace can melt the most impenitent to tears. Judas's apostasy and his wickedness should humble us, shouldn't it? We engage in sin and we make similar transactions and commitments Yet by the grace of God, we are not lost. 
It's troubling to see his betrayal so vividly revealed while also he's cunningly concealing it. The deceitfulness of sin is scary. One preacher has said, you know, you could enjoy a great many privileges. You can sit under great teaching. You can go to a great conference or tune in every week on, on online. You can read great books. You can make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And you can still betray him. You can still be a person unchanged by the grace of the gospel. And Judas is perhaps the greatest example of that ever. This man heard the Sermon on the Mount with his own ears. This man saw the miracles of Jesus. He saw the resurrection. He saw the healings. He saw how the Lord Jesus responded with mastery of the word of God to the greatest teachers in the land. He lived with the man day by day. He saw the perfection of his holiness. And he still betrayed Jesus. If that doesn't scare you, That doesn't put the fear of God in you. I don't know what will, he says. No man ever had greater advantages than Judas. And yet he betrayed him. Is that not a warning to us? Now, it's not a warning to every believer who is truly a believer. For you cannot be lost and you cannot so immerse yourself in sin as Judas did. Because God is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Submit to the Lord. Respond to the Holy Spirit. Repent of your sins. Commit your way to the Lord. But what if you're a person here today who is a false professor? You've, and you know it. I believe Judas knew it. Judas was quite cognizant of the fact of who he was. If Judas had examined his life, he would see that he had an inordinate love of money And he did not have a love of Jesus. In fact, his heart was turned in bitterness and enmity against Jesus. Over the years, there have been one or two who have left this church soberingly. And we have wondered, how? Where were their hearts? What was going on? And we found out afterward that almost in every single case, there was a secret life of sin bottled up that we didn't know about. If you're living a double life, if you're here every Sunday and you're willing to do just about anything, but but meanwhile, secretly, you are living according to your own pleasure, delighting in the sins of this world and secretly having no use for Christ Uh, barely able to take up your Bible and really having no appetite to read it, no desire to draw near in prayer before the throne of God's grace, no intention really of serving Jesus with your life. And if we were to see and observe you privately, your life has nothing whatsoever to reflect at all that you love Jesus. And yes, this is a warning to you. Hypocrites ultimately are consigned eternally to hell. Hypocrites are not afforded a place in the house of God. Hypocrites and apostates will not hear at the end, well done, good and faithful servant. Judas forces us to face our guilt when we willingly turn away from Christ, crucifying him and subjecting him to public disgrace, we are plotters and schemers, men and women scheming how to be free of these assumed oppressive commands and restrictions. This is a word for all those who are in the church and yet really not of it and who have, who have bitterness in their heart against the word of God. And I've heard even recently from one whom I love, that person who I dearly love. I don't believe in the Bible. It's a book written by men and women, or men, anyway. It's a book written by man. It's, it's, it has no claim on my life. I don't believe what's there. If, if you don't believe what's there, are you not lost? And my hope is that was not a truthful statement. Or if it is that 
eventually the Holy Spirit will bring deep conviction and let them see that the word of God is, they are the words of life. The people and unbelievers and hypocrites and apostates are plotters and schemers, men and women scheming how to be free of these assumed oppressive commands and restrictions, despising commitment and obligations of holiness, of accountability, of life within the community of God's people, of joining in churches and doing work for the Lord in the church. They're consumers who have no interest in service, spocking against the order, Discipline and maintenance of our salvation, not interested at all. Bargaining with God, as it were, giving him only what we must. Considering Mary's sacrifice, just like Judas, to be far too much. You and I, we would share the guilt of Judas's betrayal if it weren't for God's grace. We too would give up our Savior for a few coins. Just a little bit more satisfaction in my body, my soul, my mind. If you're struggling with the condition of your own heart, if you're asking, Lord, is this me? Jesus, is this me? Am am I, there's there's a sense in which I, I feel so much of what I'm hearing this morning in my own heart. Is this me? Judas wanted money more than Christ. Judas wanted money more than Christ. Do you want something more than Christ? Do you shed tears more over something in your life more than Jesus Christ? Is there something you want more than him such that you would walk away, bargain your life away and abandon the Lord? Or if you come to those moments where you thought, I've, I desire this more than anything, I, 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 I so want this. Recently, and, and I, I hope they're not angry with me, but recently one of one of my children had an interaction with a young man. <clears throat> and I have young daughters. They love the Lord. And they desire someday to have their own family in the way of God's own choosing. And in interacting with this young man, this daughter right off the bat asks, Are, are you a Christian? And what do you understand a Christian to be? This young man was taken aback by that. I was proud of the things that she said in response to him. And fundamentally in that moment, she made a choice. And and I recognized that as her dad. That she had made a choice no matter who this guy was, no matter how good looking he was, no matter how far in life he wanted to go with her, that there was something more fundamental, more committed to which she had to be than anything else. And that was fundamentally that this person would be a believer like she was. And there was an identity in that moment that I am a believer and nothing is more important to me than that. That was a great blessing to me. Each of us makes such choices and decisions, don't we? When we are offered pleasure or offered a situation or we are in the midst of circumstances and we have to ask that question of ourselves. I would that we didn't have to, but we are in such a, a fallen human condition in this world that we are often making a bargain with God to only offer enough to do only what we have to. And yet we have to ask that question, really, do, do I love the Lord more? Do I love this thing, this circumstance, this, this, this situation, this individual more than Jesus, such that I'm willing to bargain my life away and walk away from God? I don't believe that most of you today, that any of you really are Judas, but you need to be aware that there are many, many things in this world. Catch this. There are many, many things in this world that have been granted a place in your heart and they are trying to pull you away from Jesus. Do you realize that? There are many, many things in this world that have granted, you have granted a place in your heart And they are trying to pull you away from Jesus. Don't let them.
don't let them. The only means by which you can prevent them from doing so is to cast yourself continually on on Jesus, to continually lean on him and to affirm the things you believe and know to be true. Judas was not saying quietly to him as he himself, to his own heart, as he walked into Jerusalem to the chief priests and the scribes, I know whom I have believed and, and I know who Jesus is and this is what he's done to me. He didn't do that. He walked away from Jesus and he walked directly to these individuals working out a situation whereby he could do what pleased them and ultimately himself. But what do we do when we feel the world in its pull and the encumbrance of sin? What do we do? We remind ourselves, I am a child of God. Jesus Christ is a historical and biblical person whose biblical account I believe. What he did and the miracles he performed, I have seen and know to be true by faith. More than this, he has worked in my life. If you as a believer have ever seen, have ever been confident in any circumstance at any time that surely the Lord was at work in your life that particular day, has he abandoned you and left you all of a sudden? If you've ever felt this warmth in your approach to God in prayer and devotion and the word of God came home richly to your heart and you sunk yourself deep in the the, and immersed yourself in, in, in the word of God and it was a blessing to you. You floated on the joy of knowing the word and of delighting in your savior and the love of God for you. You knew yourself to be a child of God. That distinction cannot change. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. The only change you'll ever experience in the love of God is your perception and your conception of the love of God. Your grasp of, your intellectual understanding, and your emotional grasp of the love of God will change, but the love of God for you will never change. Hendrickson, one of the great New Testament commentators, said, In the person of Judas, the Lord wished his people in all ages to be warned not to be shattered or made lifeless by traitors in the household. Indeed, that is true. You look at the religious authorities of the day, all of them, the Sanhedrin, chief priests and the scribes are seeking how they might put him to death. They were afraid of the people. And here's Judas, even one of the ministers one of the ministers, the apostles of Jesus Christ. We are often flummoxed by men and women in in service to Christ in some form, men who are pastors, women who are servants of the Lord in various ministry contexts. And we find that privately they were wicked and sinful and they have engaged in some, some kind of fornication or wickedness of some kind that is so ruined their public service that they are, they must be taken out of the public eye. Well, how do you respond to situations like that? What should we do? Well, we should look internally at ourselves and say, Lord, is it me? Lord, I don't want to leave you like that. I don't want to bring shame to your glorious name. Lord, if there be any sinful way in me, take it out of me. That's what the psalmist prayed. Lord, if there be any anxious way in me, if there be any sinful way in me, remove it far from me. Search me. Know me. Try me. That's what the believer says. The unbeliever will not do any of it. The unbeliever is not interested at all, is not interested in self-assessment, nor in submitting to the Lord and asking the Lord to test him or her either. Well, years before this night on Exodus 12, in Exodus 12, we read about the first Passover. It was a glorious celebration. The Passover lamb was given. The Feast of Unleavened Bread and Israel's exodus from Egypt was was just before them. And the... The lamb was to be slain, the blood was to be put over the doorposts and the lintel, and and the angel of death would pass over, and in fact, the Israelites would be saved, and they were, and they were brought out, and they were redeemed by God and his power. 
Jesus is going to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread with them. Israel's exodus from Egypt was intended to help us to see that Jesus is the Passover Lamb. Next week, we'll see the Lord's Supper, the first Lord's Supper. But we look at Jesus knowing that that suffering is coming, that that death is coming, that one whom he has loved and cared for for three years was about to betray him and the suffering that he would undergo, knowing he would die a cursed death. He is filled with poise. He knows who he is and what purpose he is serving. He is commanding his disciples to go. He believes and he holds to the word of God. He intends to fulfill all of it. Uh, he He has courage. He is not afraid of death. He knows that he will be explicitly killed. He he knows that he will be accepted by the Father. He he is trusting the Father's will, even though he is approaching pain and suffering and death. He's in command. He's not a single step outside of his sovereignty. This is Jesus who says calmly to his disciples, go look for a man who's carrying a bottle of water. Now, men did not carry jars of water. Women did in that society. This was an unusual sight. If you were to go into a city with two million people, visitors, of course, well, you might wonder, well, (laughs) we're going to see a lot of people carrying water, but not a man. So Jesus says, you go look for the man, and you go into his house, and you tell him that the room is, uh, where is the room that is to be prepared for the master? God is ultimately here preparing his son, Jesus, the eternal son of God, to fulfill precisely his design for your salvation. Through the plans of wicked religious leaders, this apostate Judas and Satan himself. Think of it. What are the circumstances right now surrounding the death of Jesus? The Sanhedrin, the scribes and the Pharisees, the chief priests, they want to kill Jesus. And they are working according to their own will to bring it about. Judas is in league with them, and he has gone to them, and for money he's going to deliver Jesus over to them. And Satan himself considers this to be so important that he has entered into the very heart of Judas. All of these things are against Jesus. But ultimately, who's in charge here? God is. God is preparing the Passover lamb, is he not? Through the instrumentation of wicked men and even Satan. Do you understand it that Satan is serving the cause and the purposes of God in this passage as he enters Judas? Satan can do nothing more than the will of God. Well, this is the glorious mystery of the gospel. Jesus suffers, and it's an integral part of his gospel truth and of our apprehension or understanding of it. It's not just his resurrection, but his suffering as well. Jesus was resolute, and we might ask, well, why did he do this? He endured the suffering and shame in order to offer his life a ransom for many, to seek and save that which was lost, to set you free from your bondage to sin and death, to free you from the tyranny of Satan. He was constrained by his own will, Jesus was. He embraced your salvation and his own saving purposes. It was necessary that he be prepared in his suffering as we conclude. As the Passover lamb, that you might be spared God's justice, that his judgment would be set aside and poured out on Christ, that the destruction of the wicked and the apostate would occur and the hypocrites, that God might be glorified and that he might save a particular people to himself. This was necessary, Jesus' suffering and death, so that you could be delivered and saved from your sins, forgiven of your sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He is Jesus. He is the captain of your soul. He is the Lord. He is the one who rose from the dead. 
He's the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father in session even now. He has the power and the glory and the dominion. He has been granted the kingdom. He holds the keys to life and death. And he says today, I am the one, the one who has suffered for you. Believe in me. He is the one who has triumphed over the enemy and trod down all that prohibits or inhibits our path to him. He has defeated the last great enemy, death, and removed its sting such that we can say, O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. In order to be able to partake of that Lamb of God, you must repent of your sins. It doesn't just mean that in general you say, well, yes, I give them all to him, but that you go through them methodically and carefully so that you might recognize the immensity of your sin and your great need for Jesus Christ. You must own them all. You must state them clearly. All that you know of sin in your life needs to be brought before Christ. If you hold back, you are nothing more than Judas. Nothing more than an apostate, and we're only waiting for the moment. When in fact you ultimately say, Jesus is not worth it, and you walk away. Repent of your sins, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. Examine yourself. Come to the Lord and find full and free forgiveness and life eternal. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks to you for your word. We are humbled by the example of Christ who, though knowing, knowing what he would suffer, endured the suffering and the shame, had set before him the cross and all of its suffering. And he desired to carry out your will and to deliver sinners from their sins. Oh Lord, we give thanks to you. We give thanks to you for your reassuring word and your comfort in knowing that if we have experienced the love of God in Christ, if the word of God has dwelt within us richly, if in fact we have seen the Lord at work in our heart and life, and if we have not made that bargain that Judas has, then we have a reasonable hope and a, and a full assurance that we are in Christ and he in us. And everlasting life is truly ours in Christ Jesus. Help us, O oh God, to look to him who is the author and perfecter of our, of our faith. Lord Jesus, come and perfect our faith. Come and author our faith. Come and equip faith. Only keep us in the palm of your hand. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.